Stay tuned now for Byline Mendocino. And good morning. This is Byline Mendocino. This is a fifth Friday edition of Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. And today we have a special edition of Byline. We're going to be talking with Phil Worf, who's a political science professor at Mendocino College. We're going to be doing a political year in review 2022. This is an homage in honor of Bob Bashansky and politics, a love story, and Phil and Bob's Fifth Friday political rants. So, Phil, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Later in the hour, we'll open up the phone lines to give you a chance to weigh in about the top stories that you think are um, of 2022 and what you all are watching in the new year. But first, okay, Phil, let's jump in. 2022 is a huge historic year. So much politics, it's hard to wrap our heads around it, but let's try. Um, what's top of mind for you in 2022? Well, um, as a as a review, 2022, yes, it was a pretty exciting year. Lots of big things happening. And, uh, you know, from the election front to um, the legal front and so forth. Uh, but I, I want to start with something that I think that, you know, maybe people don't appreciate quite as much as I think they should, which is if you look at um, President Biden, um, his approval rating is uh, about 45 percent roughly and has been underwater for for, you know, a few months. Uh, it's getting better. But I think if you look at his legislative record, it's really quite impressive. And it's also impressive in terms of being bipartisan for, the, you know, all these led all this legislation for the most part is bipartisan, even if you get a little Republican support, you can still call it bipartisan. But I mean, if you look at going all the way back to the COVID aid uh, bill, the uh, what was it called the rescue plan, and then you have the Inflation Reduction Act, which really wasn't about inflation, but had some good health care and environmental pr- provisions in it. Um, the infrastructure bill, you know, also the, um, the this sort of very minor gun control measure that they passed as well. The, you know, semiconductor and chips act, the infrastructure, did I say infrastructure bill? I mean, all this, and then the huge bill they just passed. But I think if you look at this, um, Biden's done very well with a very, very minimal, uh, as minimal as possible majority, uh, in Congress as you could, as you could have. And so, uh, you know, I personally, people ask me all the time, you know, do you think Biden's too old to be, uh, to run for president in 20, you know, 24? And, you know, my, my initial reaction is yes. And I think he is, I mean, he is too old, but I think, also think that Trump is about as old as Biden is. Um, but I, I think that if you're, if you're, I tell people, if you were 20 years younger, he would be really, really strong candidate for reelection, I think at this point. Um, but, but he's not. And I don't know what that means, you know, going forward for 2023, which will be a big, uh, you know, that'll be one of the big questions. Yeah, well, um, I've heard it referred to as the gerontocracy, where um, most of the people in the highest positions of political power in the United States are, they're pushing 80. Uh, And in the case of Nancy Pelosi, she's what, 83 or something? She and she's finally now stepping down and having a sort of passing of the baton to a new generation of Democrats in Congress. Um, But it's true, we have a very, very... uh, old uh, in in years uh people who are representing us or our, our government in general and so um it's interesting but it also means that they have a lot of experience and with Biden with all his years in the Senate it seems like he really knows how those levers work 
And, but the other thing is, is that in, in, in terms of top stories, we're not hearing a lot about this, the legislation, I think, compared to all of the other stories that we're going to, going to talk about January 6th and the Dobbs decision and abortion, the midterms, the non-red wave, uh, all of that kind of stuff, inflation, pandemic. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons that we, that we don't hear so much about the legislative achievements, which have been, it just feels like a new sort of in, in my life, at least in my adult lifetime, I haven't I haven't experienced government actually, you know, releasing resources for the kinds of progress that seem to be be making, and also the fact that like all of our pocketbooks have seen the money that they've released over the last several years. You know, it's like every time I check my bank account for a couple of years, I was like, oh wow, hey, thanks. Hey. You know, <laughs> there's more money in there. Like I, I could get used to this. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think, um, you know, part of the that was great. And I think that you know, if you look at the pandemic response, I mean, even beginning with Trump, um, but but continuing with Biden, the, the stimulus packages, stuff like that was really essential, really helpful in making it less uh, devastating than it could have been economically and socially and so forth. However, I think part of the, what resulted from that is the inflation the uh, you know that we're seeing because of there's so much money, as you were saying, hey, I got this money. And so let's spend it. Right. And uh, let's let's go to Amazon. And so I think that, you know, and then, you know, given some of the limitations in terms of, you know, the the threats or the ability to produce and transport and all that prices are increasing as a result of that. So I think Biden's big challenge is to get that down. Um, one of the things that you mentioned, though, is about um, how old, you know, some of the leaders and particularly, well, Republican and Democratic parties. But I mean, if you look at Dianne Feinstein, for example, you talked about Nancy Pelosi, but I mean, she's in her 80s as well. You know, she, um, you know, she doesn't seem like she wants to, you know, go anywhere. Um, she just won re-election um, a couple of years ago, I think. And uh, so, you know, this is a problem, but they have, um, you know, Steny Hoyer also, who was the um, in the in the Trump in the uh, House leadership, you know, also all these guys actually stepped down and they said, OK, we're passing it along to a new, um, you know, new group of Democratic leaders who are younger. And I think that's really important because not so much that they're out of touch. Um on big legislation, but they're really just out of touch with young people in a way that um, is just too significant given that age difference. And, um, you know, with young people being, you know, who needs to be appealed to going forward, I think that's a, it's a good decision to finally sort of, um, you know, move that along. And I think Nancy Pelosi is fairly happy with what she's accomplished in the last couple of years and can go away feeling pretty good about it. So, um, you know, so there's, um, you know, so there's positives and negatives about the, the, um, the elderly leadership, but I think that, uh, I think it's, they've stepped aside now and that's positive for the, for the Democrats and for the country as a whole. So, yeah, so let's, jump into talking about uh, one issue that is incredibly motivating for young people, and that is the Dobbs decision and abortion rights. Um, so this is something that was just uh, explosively huge for our national politics. Um, you want to maybe give a little background on it and then um, talk about why it's a huge story for 2022. Yeah, I mean, so basically the and uh, the Roe v. Wade decision back in 1973 uh, built on a previous decision of the court about um, about racial relations, actually, uh, or actually about um, the use of birth control. And so basically what the court said in the 1970s was, look, if uh, the Constitution doesn't specifically protect abortion rights, but if you look at what the Constitution does protect, 
um, there's this what they call the penumbra of the Constitution, which means it's sort of the shadow cast by the Constitution. And they say, look, if you if you um, put these if you put this together, right, you know, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, you put them all in there, and it's clear that the idea was that there should be this right of privacy um, inherent in the Constitution that every person should benefit from or or be protected uh, by, and that was the basis of the Roe v. Wade decision uh, giving it federal protection uh, abortion rights. But that you know the the new Supreme Court is sort of applying. Uh, well, basically, it's political to a large degree. But they're saying you know look, this was this was something that um, you know it's not specifically in the Constitution. Uh, we think this interpretation is wrong, and you know they threw it out. Um, and basically, it just sends it back to the states. Uh, you know, so Medal, you have um, you know, uh, I think thirteen states now with um, complete, well, maybe not complete abortion bans, but you know, bans that uh, have very limited, uh, you know, escape clauses and so forth. And so, um, you know, what does this mean for twenty twenty three? It would be great, I think, for many people if Congress could pass legislation uh, at the federal level. But it seems that's very unlikely to happen. Uh, you know, going forward. Uh, but California did put uh, constitutional pro- or protection into the you know, California Constitution. I also think a number of uh, a couple of other states did this, um, had had um, uh, measures about abortion rights, and they were big. They're big in terms of um, turnout and so forth. But maybe we shouldn't go all the way there um, right now. But but the way the court looks at this is um, the Supreme Court, this conservative dominated court is is um, is very different. And I think this is one of the important things to, to think about, too, and to talk about is how significant control the Supreme Court is. And so if you look at Trump, well, we remember McConnell sort of, um, you know, holding, uh, you know, hostage the possibility right, of uh, exactly. Obama's last nominee. This is a long right. story, right? It goes back to that horrible chapter where Mitch McConnell wouldn't allow uh Obama, President Obama to nominate a Supreme Court justice in the last part of his term. And then uh, all the way up to Amy Coney Barrett and those hearings and, you know, some questions about whether or not she was being forthright in her stance about Roe v. Wade and her position on that, which now it does not appear that she was forthright about that because, you know, it seems like the first chance they got, they, they, with her in the majority there, they overturned Roe, which seemed unthinkable. Uh, but as it got closer and closer, uh, it seemed to be really imminent. Um, and then, of course, it happened. So, um, yeah, this is a long, longer story that's been in the works for for a very long time. And and crazy because I've heard seventy percent of the American public supports abortion rights. So it's very far from the will of the people or any kind of democratic uh, decision on the federal level. Uh, this isn't something the American people want. And yet here we are facing the, the dark days of, you know, illegal abortion in the United States and in a lot of our country. Yeah. I mean, we have this, um, this situation where, uh, you ended up with this really conservative court. And I, you know, there's the, there's this thing where when there's these nominations, uh, and, and Obama did nominate Merrick Garland, who's the current attorney general. They just never talked to him. Um, but one of the things that happens is, um, presidents via their Supreme Court appointments have the ability to control policy outcomes in a lot of ways for a couple of decades following their presidency. And I think Trump really benefits. I mean, we've got a very clear conservative majority on the court. It's going to last for, 
who knows how long. Uh, and so this is huge. And, um, you know, there's also, you know, when 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 the Senate um, evaluates these candidates, there's there's this process by which they try to say something, but not really anything. Right. You know what I'm talking about, where they say, Senator, that's a great question. And I, but I don't want to answer anything that might come up directly before the court, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so they try to talk themselves out of it. But you know, we, we we know from things that they've said, we know from decisions they've made that, you know, she, she was shining us on and that's not uncommon, you know. So, but it's a big deal. I mean, Trump's going to, his legacy will be cemented for, you know, possibly a couple decades uh, by I mean, the, uh, the Supreme Court appointments. Well, I've heard some talk about different strategies to get around this sort of, you know, very extremely conservative court that's out of step with the people of the United States. Uh, c- do you think any of those strategies, could you talk about them uh, or not? Um, if you think that they're just sort of pie in the sky, but some people, you know, people are like, what are we going to do? We can't live in a country where um, the court is so out of step with the desires of the, of the people. Um, and also a lot of commentary about how the court is undermining its own sort of legitimacy by being so far uh, removed from the will of the the American people. Yeah, I mean, I think um, for me uh, on this question of um, public uh, opinion and any divergence between that and the court, I don't see that as being a huge problem. It is a problem, as you mentioned, in terms of public attitudes about the court and how much they have trust in the court and so forth. Um, but, you know, if you look back at um, some of the court's major decisions, including Roe v. Wade, these are decisions that went against public opinion and the Constitution doesn't concern itself with public opinion. Uh, the court should, however. Uh, and so it needs to be a little, uh, I think, more, uh, you know, a little more honest in a lot of ways. Um, now, one of the things that you can do, um, you know, and uh, some people have talked about it, is you could try to increase the size of the Supreme Court. So one of the things that Congress certainly has the power to do, and this has been done, you know, more than once to change the size of the court in, in history, not uh, in the 20th century, I don't think, or 21st century, but um, you know, uh, Roosevelt said, uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s said, well, you know, if the court doesn't like my New Deal programs, I'm just going to require you to retire when you're 70 and I get to replace you with somebody else. Right. And so uh, Congress said, mm, you know, we're not real. We're not real enthusiastic about that. Uh, but the, the court started one member of the court uh, just started to change his views about the New Deal uh, programs. And so I think enough political pressure can influence the court. I think. I think given where we are today, I'm not sure that would work, um, but it certainly could, um, you know, let's get Congress to increase the size of the court to 13, and then I can add four more justices, right, if I'm Biden. And so that's certainly one strategy, too, but I, I don't think any of that's going to happen. Are there other decisions? Uh, Dobbs was, of course, uh, you know, rolling back Roe v. Wade was obviously the the biggest, you know, most consequential one, but were there other decisions that the court made in 2022 that that have a political impact? Well, I mean, I think um, Dobbs was the the big one, of course, um, and then um, the uh, one of the the things that they've um, looked at and they're going to look at closer is the, some of the um, some of the laws relative to um uh, presidential elections and what states can do relative to that. Um, that would be. Uh, coming up, um, 
But uh, there's been a number of big decisions. I think Dobbs really overrides all of them, uh, at, you know, right now. Uh, but I think that we've seen a, a clear shift uh, to the right of the court and the way that it interprets the power of um, the public, business, government, et cetera. Uh, for example, we saw um, with the COVID thing, uh, the attempts to require um you know, government employees and all the, uh, you know, and, and people in all sorts of uh, types of jobs to um, get COVID uh, vaccinations. And the court said uh, for federal employees, uh, Congress might be on some strong ground or even, you know, the administration. But in terms of the general public or other people outside government, that was not going to fly. And so there's, um, you know, there's been a number of big decisions like that, um, you know, also by the court. All right. It's Byline Mendocino, fifth Friday edition, an homage to Bob Bashansky and politics, a love story. We are talking with Phil Worf, political science professor at Mendocino College for a political year in review 2022. I'm your host, Alicia Bales, and we will open up the phone lines, I don't know, in about 15 minutes for your political thoughts about the significant stories of 2022. Love to hear what you're following and what you're thinking. Um, let's move on, Phil. There were uh, what's your next uh, sort of big earth-shattering 2022 political event? Well, um, we could look at Trump's troubles in a whole bunch of different uh, areas. Um, so he's got he's got a set of legal challenges uh, from New York to Florida, and you know from the and the federal government as well. Uh, but I think the January sixth report that they just released is really damning of Trump, and I think they did a number of uh, well, you know they. Right. There's four things that they're saying that he did. Right. Um, you know, misleading Congress and making false statements and conspiring against the U.S. government, obstructing official proceedings. I'm doing more than four here. But uh, but the big one is the engaging in insurrection based on the 14th Amendment's um, that was passed, the 14th Amendment passed, passed after the Civil War, which talked about the potential of former uh, Southern office holders actually becoming office holders in the federal government. And that was uh, banned by the 14th Amendment and engaging in insurrection as a basis of that. And I think it's pretty clear to me uh, anyway that that happens. So there's four statutes that they're recommending that the um, Justice Department uh, pr pursue. Uh, and then um, it, uh, it, so the Justice Department has the, you know, it's got a special prosecutor now, Jack Smith, and he's going to look at this stuff and, you know, see what, see what the results are, uh, there. But I think the other, um, well, the other thing about the January 6th committee, which I thought was really good in terms of the final report is that it really focuses on Donald Trump. You know, it doesn't talk about capital security um, as, a, as any of its primary focus. It doesn't talk about um, extremist groups. It doesn't talk about, um, you know, threats to the government from, you know, racial racialist organizations and so forth. It focuses specifically on Donald Trump, things he did, the things he said, the things that he heard from other people and didn't believe. Uh, and so I think to that extent. You know, in terms of that, the, the January 6th committee did the right thing and did a, a good, a good job, I believe, because it sort of focused on what its job was instead of sort of branching out into these other kinds of things, uh, which are important. Uh, but, but this is about, um, they've, they've decided that Trump's broken these laws. I think they have a good case, probably. And so they're pursuing that and the rest of the stuff can sort of, um, you know, be looked at later. Well, and we here followed the January 6th commission hearings because they were broadcast um, both on television and on the radio. And 
for public hearings uh, for the federal government, they were they were gripping. They were so interesting and so well produced, and also um, pretty jaw dropping the whole time. And in, in each re- each revelation, I think the one that everybody's talking about right now is Cassidy Hutchinson and uh, her whistleblowing as you know a young aide who was brought into some of these you know, most outrageous meetings that happened and uh, how she was intimidated or, you know, influenced to not testify until she finally decided she had to come forward uh, for for whatever reasons that that she finally found her voice and came forward and and talked about what happened. I think Cassidy Hutchinson was the one who talked about the catch-up on the wall, you know, some of these sound bites that... You know, because Trump had thrown his lunch against the wall and ketchup was dripping down the wall. Uh, but, you know, some uh-huh. of these super memorable moments uh, of the commission. Um, can you talk a little bit about those hearings and, and how they were put together and, and, and the strategy there? And also why it matters that they focused on Trump? Well, I mean, Cassidy Hutchins, first of all, was it's a really amazing thing because having been someone young in Washington uh, and I worked for a political party uh, and I worked for um, political uh, pollsters and so forth. And when you're young, um, it's really difficult to do that, to stand up to people and to say, I've got to do the right thing and to be willing to to do that because she has to know that this is going to destroy her future in politics and the, and the Republican Party, at least. And so that takes a lot of bravery. And I think she deserves a lot of credit. I also think that, you know, we know from people like Hope Hicks, for example, who's in the White House and, and, you know, Pence and others that clearly told Trump, you know, this is, uh, this is BS and, um, you know, the election's over and so forth. And he just didn't believe it. And so I think you have to look at, um, you have to look at Pence, for example, as a really important player here. And even down to the person, the Secret Service agent that's driving the vehicle, taking Trump away from this event that he created. He wants to go to the Capitol and they say, no, we're going back to the White House. And think about how important that was in terms of a decision. So it's really um, fascinating to me. Um, But the January 6th committee is, you know, it's a bipartisan committee. So you have um, Liz Cheney on there uh, and you have um, uh, Kinzinger, I think. They're both Republicans and, um, you know, a number of Democrats. Uh, I think uh, Benny Thompson from Mississippi, he did, I think he did a great job. But I think having those two Republicans uh, on the committee and having some representation of them really made a big difference in terms of giving it legitimacy. And I think it's important. I mean, I th- I think it's important because, um, you know, they uh, this this cannot be, a, a, you know, they can't permit this to go unaddressed, uh, unchecked and, um, you know, to, to not see the light of day because for obvious reasons. Um, and so I think that was uh, beneficial for, for the committee. And I also think they did a good job of sort of releasing stuff and having uh, hearings over a short, uh, over extended period of time, which also benefited them. Now, um, you know, the, you know, but this is an ongoing problem with almost everything, which is that if you are in the Fox News universe, you don't really get a true assessment of any of this kind of thing. And so it makes it very difficult to actually have, you know, productive discussions or a look at this kind of thing. And uh, that's, right. that's a scary. It's Trump. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another, it's, it's more than 2022, but it's certainly the world we live in now is this world of like, I think they call it, you know, fake news or alternative facts or, you know, strong tactical disinformation throughout the, the electorate. And it's hard to know what's true. And so when you say, you know, we, this, this has to see the light of day for obvious reasons, 
I don't think it's so obvious to people why the commission or the January 6th committee's work was so important. And I think there may be a lot of people out there still who don't believe in what they found. I mean, one of the strokes of brilliance of the thing was uh, having, I think it was all Republicans testify. I don't, I don't know if there were any people who testified who weren't Republicans, right? So the story wasn't coming from adversaries of, of Trump. It was coming from people who were part of the Trump world, part of the Trump administration. And so, um, even that, you know, that, that, that was how the story had to be told in order to make it less susceptible to the claims of, you know, the, the, the Trump world that you said. But it's like one of the things that, the, the, what they call the MAGA candidates or the, the Trump kind of playbook is to just, you know, full out lie, you know, say things that just are completely untrue. Um, and, and then see if they can, how far they can get with that before they're, they're called on it. And we're seeing that right now with, um, the congressman who is just, you know, just completely lied about his background and facts about his life and and what happens uh in those situations when we're just dealing with a world where you can't prove you, you're not it's really hard to know what's true and what's not and why that even matters why well, is interesting this george santos uh, yeah george santos that's about, who it is right um who just made up this history which is pretty impressive by the way um <laughs> But um, you do have the state of New York that's looking at this now. But it just the, the fascinating thing to me is that, um, you know, I've been on political campaigns and I've seen it, the opposition research that's paid for, that's conducted. And I'm just uh, amazed that they didn't find out about this stuff. It's really phenomenal to me. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you have this sort of um, this acceptance on the right of candidates who simply don't tell the truth um, and some fairly significant matters, obviously the biggest one being the presidential election. And part of it, they know that people don't really pay that much attention um, or you know, the average person doesn't pay enough attention. Um, they also know that in many instances, if they're running for Congress, particularly the districts have been so gerrymandered, meaning drawn on to benefit one party or the other, that um, you just don't have to tell the truth uh, because you're you're going to get vote, voted for anyway um, if you're in a heavily Republican um, gerrymandered district. And so that's, that's part of what's uh, happening also. And this is a big issue because we're losing the connection, uh, we're losing the competitiveness of level elections. Only about, you know, 10, 20 House elections are actually competitive every two years, which is out of 435 elections, which is really crazy. And so, and then of course we have this um, whole media universe that, uh, that has its own reality. And you could say the same thing perhaps about, you know, the, the, the far left. Uh, but I think even the mainstream right has this, um, acceptance of things that you almost would think they have to know are untrue. But I think if when you have Fox News, um, creating this narrative and repeating it over and over and over, uh, and finding out, finding ways to undermine whatever the true narrative is, um, it's, this gives you the justification, the back, you know, the the support, all that you need to sort of maintain these these positions that are just 
you know, wrong and false. And uh, there are a lot of these dynamics in American politics that create opportunities for, for candidates to be this way. It's so infuriating because the people who are putting out the false narratives say the exact same thing about the 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 other okay. side. You know, they're like, well, your fault, your narrative is false. You're wrong. You're untrue. I can prove it, you know, and so it just gets to be a food fight after a while. And I think, uh, you know, in my opinion, one of the, 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 the devastating results of that is people do disengage. You know, they don't want to fight with their friends and their family. They don't want to feel angry all the time. And it's just too much of a burden. It's too high of a cost to be engaged. Yeah. Feeling angry all the time and upset and and dissatisfied. It's, uh, you know, it it can get to you after a while. And, you know, people, this, like you said, food fight, I think is a good um, way of thinking about it. And this is, uh, you know, usually what things devolve into. And so the public goes, oh, well, this is just sort of kicking dirt at each other, kicking whatever. And, um, and so they kind of, they sort of say, oh, well, both parties do it and all that. And, and really, um, you know, in most instances, that's that's not true, but it, it's an easy way. It it allows you to uh, to sort of not be uh, interested enough to fully evaluate those things. But you know, people don't look people don't do a lot of research and and make their decisions on this stuff. They look for cues. They look for people they believe in the media and so forth. And you know, so people, it's unrealistic to expect them to do a lot of this kind of to know a lot of this stuff. Uh, but it's unfortunate that the, in many cases, the information they do get is just false or misleading or um, something like that, uh, primarily from Fox News, uh, but elsewhere. And so that's what's unfortunate, I think. And as a political science professor at Mendocino College, this must be sort of one of the big banes of your existence is that there is so uh, such a relatively low level of understanding of, of, of politics. Uh, and it, you're on a crusade <laughs> to, to right. educate people about how politics really works. Well, if I could say something quickly about that, uh, one of the things I do in my uh, class uh, in, at the beginning of the semester, and I've been doing this for a while, um, is I have a, like a paragraph and it talks, it sort of a, uh, refers to a day in somebody's life and all of a sudden, you know, they go to school and they go to work, then they, you know, go to go home at night and, you know, everything from, um, you know, the minimum wage to the street light on, you know, outside your house. These are all things the government does are all things that we provide to ourselves via the government. And when people just have this immediate negative reaction about government and this sort of um, it's, it's an easy way to think about it. But the people don't really appreciate the things that, you know, government does this sort of entity that people are that find easy to dislike. Um, but it, it, I mean, even if you think about um uh going to see a Raiders game, an Oakland Raiders game. Um, you know, Oakland Alameda County Coliseum was built by the government to provide, you know, a, a venue for entertainment for the public. Now this doesn't happen anymore, but I mean this is how significant government um provides resources and services to people they just don't appreciate at all. And so I think if students can come away from my class with at least that an appreciation of what government does and that it, most of it is very beneficial for us, that's a that's a big win, I think, in a lot of ways. Well, okay, so let's let me just reintroduce you. My guest is Phil Worf, political science professor at Mendocino College. I'm Alicia Bales, and this is a fifth Friday edition of Byline Mendocino, fifth Friday of December 2022, meaning we are at the very, very end of the year and about to journey into 2023. So happy new year, everyone. And we're doing a 
a year in review, political year in review, in honor of Bob Bashansky and Politics, a Love Story, and their their Phil and Bob's Fifth Friday rants that you've been doing for, for quite a while. Now, of course, I know Bob Bashansky. I, I can rant at times, but um, we're just, you know, I'll do my best here. We're going to open up the phone lines uh, in, I don't know, about five minutes for your input on the big political stories of 2022. And that number is 707-895-2448. You can get right on the air live here this morning with us here on KZYX. 707-895-2448. We'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections on this year. But there's one huge story that we have yet to delve into, and that is the midterm elections. We were promised a bloodbath, a red wave, a repudiation of all things Democratic and and Biden-ish. And it was a red whimper and it they the republicans did take congress but they or the house of representatives but they um the democrats held on to the senate uh and the republicans have the slimmest razor thin majority in the house and so uh no there was no red wave uh and that was very significant right it was and i think that you know there were um you know, there were a few seats nationwide, like in New York, Democrats lost three seats, including the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And so, you know, just a few changes in places where Democrats should have done better. Um, they could have um, foiled the Republicans altogether. But, yeah, they took the House, um, a much smaller margin than expected. Um, and so that's going to make it tough for um the house leadership and um you know uh, in terms of well we don't even know who's going to end up being the speaker of the house at this point and so there's a big uh a big debate about that but yes the democrats held the senate that was huge for them uh the uh i think kirsten cinema of arizona has already decided she's going to become an independent or has and so but the democrats still have that uh, vice president breaking that 50 uh 50 or that i guess uh whatever tie would uh could could emerge from that so democrats still control the senate and you know importantly they get to create the committees and all that kind of stuff but you know one of the cool things or one is or one of the things that's very predictable in american politics is that uh, in off years, meaning non-presidential years, every two years or every four years, but, but between the presidential years, um, usually the president's party does really poorly. Uh, and often this is just a reaction of, you know, just a, a correction, let's say the public thinks of it as. Um, and we have not, we didn't, the only time we haven't seen that was in 1998 when um, Clinton was was being, um, had the impeachment uh, you know, process going against him. Um, but we also, um, you know, saw it here, uh, where the, well, the president lost seats, but very, very minimal relative to what, uh, was thought. Um, but I, you know, there's, I can talk a lot about, you know, why Democrats did better or worse or so forth. Uh, but I think what's, what's we've really seen in the last couple of, um, cycles is that Democrats are doing much better in places like Georgia, for example, uh, in um, Nevada and Arizona in particular. Um, who knows what's going to happen to Texas in, you know, not too distant future. Now, I think the Democrats are probably overestimating how successful they're going to be longer term with um, Latinos, particularly Hispanic men. Um, but 
uh, right now uh, doing very, very well and, um, you know, taking some places where Republicans have done well uh, better in the past. And so that's a big story of 2022. Uh, but I, I guess um, I'll stop on that right now. We can talk about why Democrats did better and who who voted, who didn't vote and all that. Uh, but Boy, they, have they I heard so many takes on that, yes. right? With all the hot takes about why, how, who, how, how it happened. Um, what are your takes? Well, I mean, I think it's clear that the Dobbs decision was was huge, because if you look at places like um, Kansas, for example, or Michigan that had, you know, ballot measures about banning abortion, you saw huge increases in women registering and women registering uh, like 30 percent in Kansas um, after the uh, Dobbs decision. You know, unbelievable. Um, and so, uh, you know, that turnout was was big, but but just, um, you know, uh, women turning out in bigger numbers than than usual or bigger numbers than expected, uh, partly because of Dobbs voting heavily Democratic. Um, you know, the majority of voters were women. The majority of women voted Democratic. And so I think um, Democrats really benefited from the Dobbs decision. I mean, if you look at and in fact, I think if it was immediate, if the election had been immediately after Dobbs, Democrats might have actually won because they were doing really well in the poll up until toward uh, the end. But I think that I think young people also huge for Democrats and they've been turning out well, um, in particular in this midterm election, I thought was really important. Um, Democrats did better with independents, with suburban voters, I'm not saying they won them, but they did better than usual. Um, and, you know, also think that, <laughs> that uh, uh, Trump had some really um, the, Candidates that Trump endorsed were really um, bad candidates. Um, you know, talk about candidates that simply refused to deal with uh, the truth. Um, guy like Mastriano in Pennsylvania, for example. Uh, but if you look at Carrie Lake in um, in uh, Arizona, and then Herschel Walker, and a number of these places, I mean, Trump really got um, his candidates got destroyed or at least defeated. And I think that that's a big story um, out of this election too. And what does that mean for Trump going forward? And what does that mean for Dem Republicans in terms of their willingness to go after Trump? And uh, I think you'll see more of that. Um, how successful it's going to be, I don't know. I think um, Trump Trump's already announced his 2024 uh, bid. So um perhaps for, for reasons other than um, just making sure that everyone's aware of it, um, mainly being that he believes it might insulate him from s some investigation or some uh, reprisals because he's uh, there. There people, whoever it is, is going after him because he's uh, running for president. So I think that's part of what he's doing is attempting to use it to shield himself to some degree or to make be able to make the claim that uh, attacks on him are political, right? So um, lots of, but I think Democrats are a little, you know, they didn't do as well um, with some groups as they hoped relative to 2018, right? Um, uh, even even younger voters, um, even, um, uh, you know, independent voters uh, and various different, um, um, and, and women, of course, but and so, so um, but 2018 was a really good year for Democrats, but, you know, 2022, much better than, than expected, but still not, you know, um, didn't, not as good as 2018, but no, I guess no one expected that to happen. Yeah, 2018 really was a blue wave, as they said. So um, yeah. it, it was sort of a, a, a high, but that was a direct direct response to four years of Trump or two years of Trump. Sorry. That was 2018. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. so um, yeah, the swing on the other side. Um, 
the other thing that was at, in play here, we heard a lot about access to the ballot, um, voting rights. There were a lot of Republican-sponsored bills throughout state legislatures making voting harder uh, in general. Yeah. And um, and so do you think that was much of a factor? And, and what's the, what does the future hold for the future of voting rights and access to the ballot? And interestingly enough, just to tag on, you talked about Carrie Lake. Um, mm-hmm. She seemed to be the only high-profile Republican after this midterm who, you know, crusaded forward with uh, with a big lie-style fight against the election results when she lost, which I thought was interesting because I um, dreaded that there would be a lot more of that those kinds of fights uh, by Republicans. But they sort of just conceded and, and went home, like Herschel Walker in Georgia. Yeah, and I think um, you know even people who said they weren't going to concede, which I, uh, I'm thinking again in Pennsylvania, um, you know, and they ultimately did um, because you know uh, even. Uh, but but you're right. I mean, I think uh, Carrie Lake was the only one who really you know she she took her claims to court and she um, you know she, she's particularly good at being untruthful, and so um, surprising not surprising that she did that. Um, but but I, I also I agree that um, Trump was probably quite dissatisfied that his candidates didn't weren't more uh, aggressive in uh, complaining about their losses or making uh, claims that something was inappropriate. Now and and you know throwing throw, you know relating that to uh, voter uh, access to the ballot and those kind of things, it's really is surprising in some ways that Democrats did as well as they did now. Um, because in 2020, you had lots of uh, more mail voting, lots of um, voting uh, or po- locations where you could drop a ballot off, even just basic stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you get Republicans, mainly Republican states, um, going after, you know, trying to do things like um, voter ID laws, right? And which have been done quite a bit or making people have a specific voter registration, or voter uh, ID card or some some specific kind of ID, right? Which many people and the people who are less likely to have the kind of IDs that are required would be people who'd be more likely to vote democratic. So it's clearly political. Um, you know, this, uh, huge numbers of polling stations being closed, like the number of polling stations available now, um, or just, just, um, you know, one of those strategies, particularly in Georgia, if you saw some of the lines for the, the runoff election, which is unbelievable people. I mean, this is, and so if you look at a fundamental, this is fundamentally a challenge to democracy in lots of ways. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting and crazy, actually, um, surprisingly enough from the pillow guy, but, um, this idea that somehow if you got rid of electronic voting machines and went to paper ballots, that this would resolve these problems. Um, when in fact, um, paper ballot elections typically have higher error rates in terms of counting and so forth. Um, they're more difficult to run. Uh, they're more expensive. You know, you name it. And um, they're, they're not going to solve this, whatever this problem is that, um, you know, people uh, in the Trump orbit and others, you know, see. And so uh, this is just, and, but of course, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, he's running for the Republican National Committee leadership position. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. I think I haven't seen any data or any, you know, any insight on that, but I think it's pretty fascinating, um, that you have someone who's that, uh, clearly misinformed and, uh, I wondered what, what word you were going to choose to describe, <laughs> right. Um, I think that was pretty kind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was good. Um, so, you know, 
President Biden came out and made a major speech about democracy being on the ballot. Um, do you think that and that kind of campaigning about this isn't just about one election, this is about democracy and, you know, we're so close to losing it and the the extreme right wing is, you know, pushing us away from democracy toward authoritarianism seems like a pretty big story for 2022 to have the president come out with that with that kind of messaging. Do you think that was uh, true or do you think it was a campaign strategy or, you know, how do you look at, at that kind of messaging? Well, do I think it's true that um, there's a, a move toward a more um, authoritarian type understanding of politics? Uh, I think that's happening on the right. Absolutely. I think it's being fueled by Fox News, for example. It's being fueled by a perception um, mainly based on race, I think, about the decline of the white population, uh, which is driving much of this. Um, so, um you know, I think it's true. I think there was a lot of debate, however, about or um, disagreement, let's say, um, not beforehand, but after this came out, uh, I think, um, as to whether this was a good idea, whether this was an effective way to spend time and money and so forth. Um, Biden's hunch was pretty good, I think. And I think, um, you know, obviously, we can't know exactly what people were reacting to. Um but I think this was helpful. And I think people, if you look at how poorly Trump's candidates did, um, you would have to think that there was some correlation here. And I, I do, I would like to see more uh, polling data on this and stuff, but um, I think it turned out to be pretty smart. And I don't have, like I said, I don't have any clear, um, you know, direct uh, uh, causation analysis here, but um, it was it was something that people said, hey, you're wasting your time. Let's talk about inflation. Let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about something. But I think he he gets it. And it's really a big story. And it's really important. And I think if this is one reason why I think if the January 6th committee or if the, the Justice Department doesn't go after Trump on this stuff or the insurrection, um, that's probably more dangerous to democracy than, you know, almost anything I can imagine, um, really, uh, in, in the current context. And uh, so I think Biden had a pretty good hunch on that. And maybe that was one of the one of the things that really benefited Democrats. Maybe it was less beneficial than I think. But I think that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Well, and that that pivots us toward looking toward the future, of course, 2023. Uh, do you think one of the big stories is going to be whether or not Trump is charged and how that's well, going mean, to go absolutely. down? Absolutely. That might be the biggest story of 2023. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, given what the January 6th committee has done, and I think just the appointment of the special prosecutor suggests that there's going to be a really close look at this uh, and, and what's going to happen from it. This is the biggest story of 2023. Uh, also, no question about it. Uh, I think abortion is still going to be a big uh, question at the state level, particularly, um, you know. <sighs> right. What, abortion. What... I mean, I've heard a lot of concern that that the Republicans will go for a national ban on abortion. So at the state level, certainly, but also at the federal level, whether or not the they're going to try to do some, you know, blanket federal ban on abortion that would preempt the state rights. Well, this would be interesting. Um, but I, I think uh, I think Republicans like to talk about this really politically. But if you look at what Trump had the presidency and both houses of Congress, and did we see Congress um, banning abortion rights nationwide? No, we did not. And the reason they didn't do that is because it's not a popular position, uh, particularly very rigid bans where there's no exceptions for the life of the mother and you know things like that. Uh, and so 
you know, this is going to be a huge issue. I think Trump also has a number of other legal issues he's going to have to deal with in New York, for example, with his with his business, the uh, documents issue in Florida. This is also going to be continue to be a huge thing. I mean, which is crazy. Um, but, um, you know, so we'll have we'll have those as, you know, really big issues uh, coming up in, in 2023. Um, what, what what's going to happen in the House? How, how are the Republicans going to be able to put up any real effective opposition? Um, what are they going to be how are they going to be able to um, you know get some of what they want? Um, and I think, you, you know, the House and there's a pretty radical group of um, of um, uh, MAGA people in the house and you know they're going to push it to the right fairly significantly and uh it's unclear what's going to happen there in terms of their ability to influence legislation uh but also you're going to see a lot of hunter biden i mean the main thing they want to do is investigate hunter biden for whatever whatever he's done um you know related to his act his business activities or something and so clearly this is um their strategy for the next two years would be to simply to get as many investigations of the biden administration going as possible uh and they've talked clearly about this and so um you know that's going to be one of the biggest things of 2023 i think uh unfortunately and of course inflation and the economy is going to be huge i mean uh i don't want to, to keep going on but if you look at the federal reserve a lot of people would say this is the interest rates hike the interest rate hikes the federal reserve are doing is um actually you know creating a recession uh maybe it'll deal with inflation to some degree but um it seems odd that creating a recession would be the appropriate economic policy but you know the fed the federal reserve is an independent uh entity so um you can't really blame biden for that i don't think although one would expect somebody's twisting arms in the back room i don't know right <laughs> <laughs> You're I don't not know. Weigh in I've them. never <laughs> been in one of those back rooms. They don't let people like me in there. I don't no, know. No, I can no. only imagine what arm twisting the smoke filled back room. That's right. Um, although, yeah, yeah it, it is. It's amazing to watch the interest rates go up and see the immediate effect on the housing market. Um, and, and also to just reflect on the priorities, right, um, of the Federal Reserve versus like the average human in the United States. Like, you know, I was listening to a story this morning about um, unionization and how, you know, the favorable conditions for workers have created the opportunity for unionization across the country and unions, um, you know, are, are organizing and uh, getting into different workplaces uh, in a way they haven't done in decades and being very successful. And, and this is not something that the Federal Reserve would be happy about, right? And like home prices going down, um, also not something that the, that's good for the economy. So, you know, it's like the disconnect between what's good for people in our country versus what's good for the economy. That's something I think, you know, is, is that, that we need to, to deal with, <laughs> you know, because housing is just absolutely impossible at this point and it's a, a crisis and, you know, the amount of, of debt that people are in and, you know, the, uh, the energy costs and utilities and just everything that makes it, even when the economy is doing great, just so hard to make it month to month, you know, for, for individuals, mm -hmm. you know, it just seems like a huge, a huge gap. And when, when you see the, the discourse about the federal reserve, it really makes that clear. It's like, yeah, it's all very uh, theoretical, but it's really affecting everybody's lives, just the quality of, of life for most of us. Right. And, you know, if um, but if they if it can um, sort of tamp down on inflation, that would be helpful. But um, it seems like 
you could do that without sort of creating a recession, which um, is appears to be what what's happening. Um, I like the fact that you brought up the unionization stuff, being a, a former um, head of the union at the college, the fac- full-time faculty union. Um, I think it's really important to me, and I, I, I love you know Starbucks unionization and uh, other places um, that are just sort of moving into, uh, I guess, some Amazon locations and so forth. And people, you know, workers are finally recognizing that, um, you know, um, collective action is important because um, this our, the government has increased the federal minimum wage and 15 years or something. Um, you know, the power of big business is phenomenal. They're protected significantly by Congress, uh, particularly the Republicans. And one of the things that happened in this omnibus bill is there's a big chunk of funding for the National Labor Relations Board. And so that deals with these unionization questions and resolves these issues and, and stuff. So, and Biden is a big union guy. And so if you're, if you're, um, if, if you're looking, if, if you want to be happy about, what's happening with unions, you should be happy right now because there's been such a decline and the Supreme Court has been, you know, uh, has been undermining union power as well in the past several years. And I think this is, if you're, if you're someone who thinks the unionization and collective action is important for workers, this is, this is really great. Um, and we'll see if Howard Schultz can come back to Starbucks and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and knock the unions out. I'm guessing no, however. Right, depending on how uh, how much organizing the workforce there is doing, and uh, the the young people are smart and committed, and they don't see much of a future other than the one that they can create for themselves, and wresting some of this economic and political power from the corporations where they're working is a is a huge front for for the younger generation. So it's really inspiring. I'm so grateful for the organizing because yeah. it's a lot. It's huge. It's huge work. It's exhausting work. And, you know, it's, it, it's about your livelihood. So there's a lot of personal risk involved and they're doing it. They're going for it. So, all right, we've got five minutes left. And this conversation has flown by. Thank you so much for being yeah. here, Phil. Um, it's Byline Mendocino, fifth Friday. We're going back over the um, the political year in review 2022. And I just wonder, as we move toward the new year, um, can you just advise us on some of the best sources of reliable information about politics and, you know, and, and where to find information that you can trust. Right. Um, this is, um, it's a little hard for me because I use, uh, um, some, some academic sources like, um, Congressional Quarterly and stuff uh, of that sort that provides some more in-depth, um, uh, you know, investigation or coverage of certain things. But, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a lot of great insight here. I mean, it's just the places that you would expect to go for good, solid political reporting. Um, you know, unfortunately for the good one, the best ones, it involves uh, money. Uh, but the Washington Post, obviously, and the New York Times, those are the places if you want to look at good political coverage and stuff that's not, um, excessively tilted or anything like that. Um, those are the good uh, places. I mean, you can, you can get a New York Times subscription for, you know, $5.99 a month or something. It's really not a big deal. Um, but, um, there are a couple of blogs like, uh, Talking Points Memo. I really like, uh, I've liked a lot in the past, uh, too. Um, 
but you know really just uh major newspapers and there's some people i like um who you know uh, release stuff on facebook uh, heather cox richardson for example and some other uh, people of that sort um and so you know not not a lot of great insight here places the kind of stuff that you would expect um to see uh but i think if you um if you're really really into um you know politics there's there's a there are plenty of good resources at the public library uh even um uh, that that you could you know, access even you know basic stuff like you know uh, mag magazines like the atlantic magazine is quite good um you know time and newsweek used to be quite good but they've kind of fallen um you know out of favor a little bit but you know just some basic sources like that no no, no great insights there well and it's important i guess one of the things you might talk about in your classes is how to evaluate the sources of information that that you're consuming um and if people i think go you know your class might be a, a good opportunity for people as well so are you teaching in the coming semester i think everybody should take my class yes <laughs> um yes I, i'm um i'm teaching american government every semester obviously sort of a basic intro american government class um and then i also teach uh, social science research methods so if anyone's interested in learning how to do um social science experiments you know i'm your guy i'm a uh, that not a huge, uh, you know, general public demand for that. Um, but also I'm, I'm teaching international relations um, in the spring. And uh, I think that's, uh, we'll be in the classroom. So it should be, I hope. And so it should be very stimulating. There'll be some good debate, some group activity. And I think people would love it. So I hope, um, nice. I hope some people from the general populace would like to take my international relations class too. But yeah, I mean, if, um, you know, if you want to find out about basic American politics, I'm your guy. All right. And that's at mendocinocollege.edu to sign up. and Mendocino.edu. Yeah. Mendocino.edu. And the class you teach in the Ukiah campus. I teach online and then I teach uh, in the Ukiah campus. And we do teach in Lakeport but not uh, and in Willits, but not every semester. Okay. And so uh, when does the semester begin? Um, let's see, January 17th, I think it's a Tuesday. It's the day after Martin Luther King Day. Yeah. Okay, so you, there's still time to sign up if these kinds of topics uh, are your thing. You can go deeper and learn more about the institutions of government with our guest today, Phil Worf, who's political science professor in Mendocino College. Phil, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun. It's and great, um, hopefully we'll... Great year and yeah. Hopefully 2023 20, will be just as exciting. Happy New Year. And hopefully you'll be back on for the next fifth Friday with Bob himself. But thank you for joining me today. And again, Happy New Year and happy 2023. You too. Thanks. All right. And thank you for listening. We're going to head back over to Philo now for uh, a wondrous world of music. Last wondrous world of music of the year with Gordon Black. Thanks again. Uh, I'm Alicia Bills, and this has been Byline Mendocino. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.